If you would, please, turn in your Bibles as they go to the book of James, chapter 1. In a 2017 article in The New Yorker by author J.B. McKinnon, begins with these words. In the first light of dawn on June 3rd, two rock climbers approached the base of El Capitan, the towering stone heart of Yosemite National Park. They were first overwhelmed, everyone is, by the sweep of golden granite reaching 2,700 feet into the sky. And then they noticed a lone figure, not far above them, moving swiftly up the wall. Such is the lore of the valley that it could only be one person, could only be one moment. Oh my, said one to the other, it's happening. On that early morning in June, famed rock climber Alex Honnold scaled the granite face of El Capitan, El Capitan in four hours without the aid of ropes and harnesses. This incredible feat, documented on the Oscar-winning and palm-sweat-inducing film Free Solo, has been described as the perfect human achievement that transcends all sports. To call this a record-setting event does not do it justice. Usain Bolt is a record-setting sprinter, but a lot of people can run the 100-meter dash, just not as fast as he can. What Honnold performed was an event that no one is qualified for, let alone willing to participate in. The stakes for free soloing could not be higher. It's described as a dance with death. And the only way Honnold admits that he is able to do this death-defying feat is not by just flying carelessly up the mountain despite the fear and danger, as if he really, really wasn't that scared and it really wasn't that dangerous. No, he confronts the very real possibility of death and prepares himself and his responses in those moments. In his words, he irons things out, he irons out all the details and the unknowns until there are no more questions to be ironed. In short, he prepares. He, he knows he's going to face danger and fear, and he trains his body to respond differently to those things it, than it naturally wants to. The result, were you and I to be placed in any similar situation, you put me at anywhere on that wall over five feet, and I am terrified, frozen, unable to move, panicked. And Alex Honnold has trained himself to be in those same situations and respond differently. Now, that, that, that's all well and good. We look at what Alex Honnold did and say, wow, that's incredible. And given the stakes, him completing that climb without dying could be called perfect. But when we look at ourselves and the moral standards of the God we serve, it can feel an awful lot like free soloing. An awesome goal, but impossible. Pitfalls and sheer drop faces at every turn. And, and we look at our own lives and we see that we are far from professional. The Christian life feels like not a stroll in the park, but a death-defying ascent up to 3,000 feet of sheer granite. And part of what plagues us are the ever-present, never-ending obstacles of living in a broken world. 
We are constantly battling indwelling sin, constantly faced with difficult and trying circumstances. And not to mention, we now live in what Ryan mentioned is this negative world where the culture around us is, is pressing in and putting the full court press on us to get in line or be wiped out. So what are we to do? What hope is there? Does, does this book have anything to say to us? And James answers those questions in the most upside down unpredicted, unnatural, yet completely gospel-saturated way. And the promise he gives you in his word, in God's word, perfection. How can that be? Let's turn to his word. Let's find out. If you would, would you please stand as you are physically able as I read James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it All joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let's pray. God, if there's going to be any work done this morning, it's going to be because of your presence among us. In your word and through your spirit and in your people, oh God, would you cause our eyes to see and our ears to hear the treasures you have for us in your word. We ask now in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Like any good race, like any good battle, like any good job interview, how you begin matters. And what we find in these two verses, the first two verses of this body of the text is James's opening volley in his all-out assault against any theology that would merely stay in our heads. Ryan mentioned last week, earth, or James is a earthy book. Well, right off the jump, James nails us to the wall, grounds us in the material, and confronts us with the reality we all live in, and he demands that we grow and mature. My aim this morning is to, is to join with James and convince you of this, that every circumstance has a divine purpose, ultimately for your total satisfaction, that every circumstance has a divine purpose, ultimately for your total satisfaction. And as we examine this incredible text, we're going to see two ways that the Lord means to grow and mature us through the two commands we find in these opening verses. First, count it pure joy, and then secondly, pursue perfection. So first, count it pure joy. Every word in these verses matter. Every word in this book matters. We believe that every word in this book is, is breathed out by God. They are his very words. So, so we need to linger to, and, and fight to understand exactly what James, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is meaning to communicate to us. Because, my friends, if we do, if we spend that time, if we fight to know, we can actually understand what God means to communicate to us. Truly, these words are more precious than gold, much fine gold. And as we read through this letter, and as you read through the New Testament in your Bible reading programs, one 
pro tip is to pay attention in particular to the commands. They're often the writer's main point. And as Ryan preached last week, James is slam-packed with commands and promises. And it's here in the opening verses we see at the beginning how James intends to continue. So, command number one, count it all joy. Critical to understanding this command is understanding what is meant by the word it. What's included? What is contained in that word? And James answers it for us, trials of various kinds. Now, it, it's tempting to hear James here and think he, he just means when things are against you, when, when things are just not going your way, buck up. And, and, and while that's true, that he is, that, that's not the whole picture. The trials James mentions is not just our own personal suffering, but the, the full range of fallen humanity. Suffering done to us as a result of our own sin, uh, temptations, and testings. The entire array of sinful humanity that we might experience, whether from within or from without, is what we are to have in view here in James 1. My friends, we live in a broken world, do we not? We live in a world where we meet often, regularly, daily, hourly, trials of various kinds. This morning, even, maybe you were fighting the fight of faith just by trying to get shoes on your kids. You're fighting a two-year-old wondering, why, why won't they listen? Is it just how they are, or is it you as a parent, you failed, and Maybe you respond in that moment in frustration and anger and you just want to do the simple thing like put shoes on and get to church on time. But then you feel shame for responding that way and sinfully and you're supposed to be the mature one in the situation. Why can't you control your own emotions? And then you repent and then they're two so they blow you off and nobody cares and you feel disrespected. All that happening within like a five minute window in a normal, godly, loving home. Or maybe you're agonizingly wrestling daily with unspeakable grief, deep grief. You've, you've lost a loved one. You yourself have received some diagnosis and, and you don't know what's next and dreams are dying and you, you try as you might to numb it day to, in the day-to-day -day busyness of life and work. You just get sideswiped by this gut-wrenching fear of the future causing debilitating anxiety and stress. Or maybe someone or, or multiple people have sinned against you and your family in deep, destructive ways. And you're constantly fighting bitterness and anger and frustration that they just seem to have gotten away with it. And no one seems to care. Or you're a stay-at-home mom and just getting out of bed to face the day with the kids and that fight and complain and never say thank you and these kids get sick, and then you get sick, and everybody's sick, and the medical bills are flying in, and the accounts are getting low, and all of it just rests on you to hold it all together. Maybe you're a dad fighting the pressures of leading your family, and you know and you feel the call to lead and shepherd your wife and your kids, and it can just feel so overwhelming. You work all day. You get home wanting to just relax and put your feet up, but the kids are pumped to see you, demanding that you wrestle and play and feel run over. And you know you're supposed to lead your family and devotions and the spiritual welfare of your house, but you're just exhausted and you feel unequipped for such a task. We could go on and on. 
We could go row by row, family by family, soul by soul, and we would start to begin to grasp what James means by trials of various kinds. It's all here. It's all part of living in this broken world. Sin, it corrupts from within and attacks from without, and that's true even for us here in the church. So it's in that context, it's in, it's in that reality that James confronts us. And the way he confronts us is not by letting us dwell in our self-pity about how hard life is and why doesn't anybody notice me and my suffering. No, James commands each of us that when we are in such situations, every time, to count it joy. That verb, to, to count, it, it could be translated to regard to deem, to consider. It means to name stuff a certain kind of thing. And and what are we to name our trials and sufferings? I'm sure we could call them a lot of things. But James commands us that when, not if, when we encounter trials, to consider, to name, to deem them joy. That is quite a start to this letter. And this is what makes James so incredible. This is unnatural. This is like being 2,000-ish feet up on the side of El Capitan, and and I would have a natural, visceral, unthought-out, instinctual response to that situation, panic. Stop breathing and just clam up. And, And we are commanded not to respond to suffering and trials in such a natural way, but to respond with joy to look at these scenarios, all the ones we just mentioned, and and rather than feeling overwhelmed and buried and paralyzed, to see them as joy. And notice, I think a better translation, a more helpful translation is pure joy. The, The type of joy James has in mind is not just all joy, nothing but joy, but more accurately, pure joy, complete unalloyed joy. John Calvin explains in his commentary on James, he says this, when he bids us to count it all joy, it's the same as though he had said that temptations ought to be so deemed as gain as to be regarded as occasions of joy. He means, in short, that there is nothing in afflictions which ought to disturb our joy. Or as Douglas Moo puts it, he says this, James does not then suggest that Christians facing trials will have no response other than joy, as if we were commanded to never be saddened by difficulties. His point, rather, is that trials should be an an occasion for genuine rejoicing. No one would say that suffering is fun. James is not saying that. Experientially, it's It's grievous, and this text is not attempting to deny that to you or say to you, just buck up, stop feeling what you're feeling, just smile no matter how hard. Rather, the aim of this text is to help you in those moments of every kind of suffering by by pulling your focus outside of the suffering to the bigger picture. The source of our joy is not the trials themselves, but what they produce Similar to to taking your kids to the dentist to get a cavity filled, right? Not fun, painful, scary, 
And yet you know that this is ultimately for their good because of the healthy tooth or teeth it will produce. The question for the child in that moment isn't, are you having fun? (laughs) Are you having a good time? But rather, do they trust that the parents love them and that this is ultimately for their good? It's always a question of faith. Our natural instinct is to view hard circumstance, suffering, trials, as obstacles to our joy. But what James explains is that hard circumstances are actually the means to our joy. In the midst of the storms of life, it is a text like this that that pulls our heads up above the canopy, orienting our perspectives above the chaos and fixing our eyes on Christ, on the Lord, who is working all things for our good. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and the glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's vital to remember that we cannot produce this joy on our own. We always must remember joy is a fruit of the Spirit, meaning its source is not found in you, but in the Spirit. It's a supernatural thing that cannot happen from our flesh. It's impossible to count it all joy from our own strength, as if we could just grit our teeth and just begrudgingly count it all joy. No, we are dependent on the Spirit for everything, including the power and the ability to name our suffering an occasion for joy. So James commands, and he demands, that we come out, count every circumstance, no matter the season, as pure, unalloyed joy. Trials are a key ingredient in our sanctification, refining us, shaping us, producing in us steadfastness so that it is even more precious than gold. And what what does he mean by steadfastness? Doug Moo, again, is helpful. The picture is of a person successfully carrying a heavy load for a long time, like a muscle that becomes strong when it faces resistance. So Christians learn to remain faithful to God over the long haul only when they face difficulty. Again, at the very base of Christian life, of the Christian life, is faith. Future hope that God will do all that he said he would do. And our hope in suffering is that God would produce in us, by his spirit, the very steadfastness promised in James 1. And like the picture of someone carrying this heavy load, not just in the immediate short term, just pick it up and set it back down, but over the long haul. Faithfulness over many years, through various seasons. That's steadfastness. Consider the people you know who you would describe as steadfast. What are some of the characteristics that they all have in common? One thing for sure is that none of them were born steadfast. (laughs) Steadfastness doesn't work like that. By nature, it, it is a characteristic that requires testing over time. Think of the trustworthy people in your life. Why do you see that they are worthy of your trust? Because they have shown to be trusting over various seasons and over the long haul. So the same with steadfastness. 
We cannot receive this apart from seasons of suffering and trial. That's why every circumstance is an opportunity, an occasion, another at-bat, if you will, at joy. So count it all joy, my friends. Count it all joy. Whenever you face trials of various kinds, whether a season of suffering, the daily fight of faith against your own sin, because you know by faith that in those moments the Lord is getting much work done in your soul and in your faith, strengthening it and refining it so that no matter the circumstance, what may be said of you is that you are steadfast. James isn't done with us. As valuable as steadfastness is, is, it is not the final goal of our trials and suffering. The product of suffering is steadfastness, but steadfastness is a key ingredient to an even more incredible reality and promise. Number two, pursue perfection. The second command in this majestic passage is passive in nature, meaning don't do something. And what are you to not do? Let steadfastness allow steadfastness to do what it must do, or put a different way, don't rob steadfastness of its value. Don't get in its way. And what is that incredible value? Perfection. So we could say James commands us to pursue perfection. Perfection. We, we hear that word, and our immediate response is, not possible. <laughs> and yet, that is precisely what James is promising to us. And I think it's passages like this that have caused the church historically to kind of squint a little when it comes to this letter. And just say things like, I don't buy it. Sure, that's ideal. That's the goal. But we all know perfection is not possible. And of course, there's some truth to that. James here is not talking about perfection in the eschatological sense. The perfection we will experience in heaven. We know it isn't that type of perfection because of the second promise given. Perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Satisfaction. Perfect satisfaction, contentment. That is what is promised here, and that is what is promised over and over and over again throughout Scripture as something that we can experience here and now. Look, look with me at a handful of verses. Isaiah 58, 11. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Psalm twenty-two, twenty-six: The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. Psalm 107, 9. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Psalm 65, 4. Blessed is the one you choose to bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. Psalm 90, 14, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Jeremiah 31, 25, for I will satisfy the weary soul and every languishing soul I will replenish. John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never 
thirst in Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. If you're wondering, there are more. (laughs) This book is filled to the brim with these promises that if you come to this table, you will eat and drink and be satisfied. And how does James define satisfaction? Perfection. No lack. But again, remember, the means to this satisfaction. What are, the, what are the stepping stones that, if trodden, will bring us to the solid rock of satisfaction? Trials, suffering, seasons of hardship. So, the pursuit of perfection and satisfaction is not the removal of hard circumstances, but endurance and growth in the midst of them. Doesn't that give you hope in your suffering? Doesn't that give you ballast in your ship in the midst of seas, whether peaceful or stormy? Ultimately, the process, the result of this process, if you trust in this process, is becoming more and more like Christ. Remember the incredible promise made in Romans chapter 8. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Our Lord is sovereignly working all things. All of it. The good things and the hard things. The peaks and the valleys. The seasons of joy and the seasons of sorrow for your good, and ultimately for your joy. And notice Paul's logic there in Romans 8. All things are what are conforming us into the image of Jesus. In our union with him, we have hope. And think of what it means to identify with Jesus, to be united to him and to be conformed into his image. Yes, of course that means his moral perfections. Throughout the rest of this letter, James is going to call you over and over again to be more like Christ, to bear fruit like Christ, to display the work of Christ in your life, in your works, and more. And he starts that idea right here in the opening verse of the body of the letter. Pursue that. Pursue perfection. But our identity with Christ is more than just being united to him and his moral perfections. A key category in Christ's perfection In fact, the most critical category for you and for me is his suffering. Just like you and just like me, suffering marked every moment of Christ's earthly mission with the exception of sin from within. We actually do have a Savior that we can relate to. And it is through his suffering that Christ matured and grew. As Hebrews 5 says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. But the climax of Christ's suffering was seen on the cross as he bore our sin and shame. By his wounds, we are healed. The suffering of Christ on the cross was not an obstacle to his perfection, but the very vehicle that brought about perfect glory. Remember Hebrews 12, verse 2. Let us run the race 
with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated now at the right hand of the throne of God. Christ looked on the indescribable, horrific suffering he experienced for you and for me, and he declared it joy. It's through that endurance and because of that suffering that he is now seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, interceding between you and the Father, putting all enemies under his feet. What a Savior we serve. What a gospel we have. It's because of Christ, James's own brother, that he now looks to us and says, do the same. Count it all joy. Be like Christ. Pursue perfection. Mature in Christ. Grow in steadfastness. Be continually satisfied in all that the Lord has for you in this life. Trust that the Lord is good. He's working all things even now, no matter your circumstance, for your good and for your joy. Let's pray. God, it feels impossible. It just feels impossible to look on our suffering, whatever it may be, and say, joy. And yet, you have not commanded us anything you have not made provision for in Christ and in his spirit. So God, we believe. Help our unbelief. Cause this word to to get work done, for us to count it all joy and to let that steadfastness that's produced in that to, to have its full effect that we might come to you and drink of the water you provide and never thirst again. To be satisfied and not only that then, that streams of living water might flow out of each of us. And all that begins with you and all that you have done. So God, help us. Help us now. Help our hearts to sing, our minds to believe, and to trust in you for all that you have for us, for today, for this week, for all of, all, all of our lives. It's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen.